right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all of you good, wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation. I hope you're having a fantastic morning, noon, or night, wherever you guys are in the world. You certainly are in the right place because uh, you're joining us for another action-packed episode here of the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm Bryce. You guys know me and my notorious compadre, Mr. Brendan Veeman, reigning from the great state of Florida. Uh, Brendan, how are you doing, my man? Doing great, Bryce. You know, the people have asked, we want to hear more about Bitcoin, especially with everything that's going on. You all asked and we shall deliver. And man, what a time to be talking about Bitcoin itself. Yeah, everybody's been asking when Wall Street, when institutional investors, I want to know when's the big money coming in. And uh, we've been asking ourselves this, Brendan, since the podcast started in 2017. And it seems like this week, as we were recording this here, Tuesday, January 9th, we're on the precipice, on the cusp, on the very bleeding edge, that moment where the ETF, the Bitcoin spot ETF, could be hitting the market, which could bring in just a wave, a rush of liquidity. Um, we're going to talk about all that and more with a Wall Street veteran. Uh, and Chris Brendler has been uh, the VP of Investor Relations at Marathon Digital, which is uh, one of the largest Bitcoin mining companies. They're publicly traded. Um, it's an incredible opportunity to speak with Chris. So, Chris, thank you for joining us and uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Really happy to be here. And I, I agree, it's exciting times. It's been waiting for this, hopefully, tomorrow for a long, long time. And uh, it's hopefully finally here. So, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, you know, I, I just want, before we dive into anything about your background or um, the company, I, I want to just get your feel, just gut feel um, as a Wall Street veteran, this ETF approval, um, you know, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And and what does that mean for our industry? Why are people so gazed in on this moment in time? Why is it so big? Yeah, it's really a very timely question. Um, you know, in, in terms of prognostication, I, I don't spend a lot of my time today. I, I used to um, when I was on Wall Street, but today more focused on Marathon and what's going on here, a lot going on. So don't spend too much time trying to figure out what's going on on Wall Street and with the SEC and, and the various <laughs> factions there, definitely difficult to, to, to cipher. I thought we'd have an ETF a long time ago. It made a lot of sense, but uh, mm-hmm. it's taken this long for mostly, I think, political reasons. So um, I think we finally had enough foot dragging and um, through delays and as, as long as they possibly could. And it's finally here today, um, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. But uh, in terms of what it means, definitely a much bigger question. I think, um, as you alluded to earlier, like we've been waiting for broader institutional adoption of crypto for a long time. I've been following um, cryptos, uh, Bitcoin in particular, since 2014. And I wrote a big report in 2014 as a Wall Street analyst, thinking that this was the most exciting technology I'd seen in my lifetime, and no one cared. You know, it, was not a, it was not something that people cared about. They were interested in it, but it was not something that they could invest in directly. And if they did, they were you know, probably very cautious about it. Um, also, a very hard thing to value as well for institutional investors. So you know, fast forward almost 10 years later, we're still waiting for a, a vehicle that makes it easier for folks to invest in Bitcoin. But you know, I think institutions, let's be honest, they, they've had a way of in, investing in Bitcoin for years now. Um, there have been you know, futures traded since 2017. You've had you know, futures-based ETFs. You can buy Bitcoin direct. So I think, you know, this, I, I think this wave and this rush into Bitcoin, it, time will tell to see how big that is. I do think it's a seminal moment for the industry, though, because you are really, I think, bringing some legitimacy as, an, as a new asset class. I mean, I think you and I and a lot of others in the space have believed this is a new asset class for a long time. 
But, you know, to have the SEC give us the, the spot ETF that we've been asking for, I think just raises that bar a little bit higher. And we're going to be uh, seeing institutions, you know, being able to to trade this regularly. Uh, a lot of retail investors will probably want to trade and put this in their IRA. So um, it brings a, a level of acceptance that, that Bitcoin is here and, and here to stay, I think, is, is in my mind, the biggest factor about the ETF tomorrow. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. Yeah, you just mentioned that you wrote a Bitcoin paper a little bit ago. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what did you write that paper about and like what was your thesis on it? Um, it actually holds up pretty well. Uh, don't mind being a little modest. It was a, I covered um, payments in fintech. Uh, for my, my Wall Street career. So my best two stocks and you know, probably still my favorite two stocks today are Visa and MasterCard, just a fantastic uh, duopoly that operates globally with very high barriers to entry and they take very small fees on every transaction. It's just, just a fantastic model. And so back in 2014, when Bitcoin had first gone to 1,000 and caught you know, so the public's eye, there were questions from investors like, hey, is this a threat to Visa and MasterCard? Could people one day be using Bitcoin instead of these plastic cards that we carry around in our wallet? And, um, you know, so I did a deep dive and, and did a report. It took me, you know, three or four months to, to, to figure out what I wanted to say. And, and the conclusions were basically, you know, it's not a threat today, but, you know, watch this technology. It's super interesting. And I, I remember like one of the, the best graphics I had to, to sort of help explain this to people is you, you can't shut it down. I mean, even as recently as a month ago, we had Jamie Diamond, you know, telling the government to shut it down. You can't shut down Bitcoin. It's decentralized. The whole point of this thing is that, you know, you had a, I had a, actually, I pick a, a, a Hydra is, was the picture I used. Like you could chop off one head, it just sprouts up somewhere else. So super ironic, you know, nine years later, I'm actually working for one of those companies and in, in mining Bitcoin and uh, with 5% market share, where I'm very excited and proud to be at, at Marathon. Uh, one of the, the most exciting stories in Bitcoin mining, I think, is, is the Marathon story. But, uh, you know, it, you go back to those those days and people didn't know what it was. And unfortunately, today, a lot of people still don't know what it is. So the negative media sentiment that has been 
were very prominent in the Bitcoin space for so many years and doesn't seem to have relented even today, um, has mm-hmm. you know a lot of people thinking it's a joke or a lot of people thinking it's not a, you know, a real technological innovation. And so hopefully with the ETF, we can continue to change that narrative and, and bring Bitcoin tech- and, and blockchain technology more to the mainstream. This is, a, this is something that's real and here to stay. Yeah. And you've got an incredible CEO, um, Fred Thiel, uh, just making waves and uh, just an incredible vision for, for your organization. Um, so I would love to hear um, kind of from, from your perspective, you know, what is Marathon Digital? Um, why is it such a key part of the Bitcoin uh, kind of industry? Um, and, you know, kind of what gets you excited about it? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I do attribute a lot of it to Fred. Um, he became CEO in 2021. He was on the board since 18 and really is the driving force behind what we've accomplished so far and, and where we're going. Um, you mentioned visionary. He really takes a very long term approach to the industry. Um, you know, I think there's a, a lot of concern about. You know, miners, I, I think you feel the evolution of mining. I mean, you know, when I first started looking at Bitcoin back in 14, a lot of it was, you know, people in their home or office, you know, just turning on computers to, to, to mine Bitcoin. And today it's much more of a, of a institutionalized, you know, sort of large scale operations, public companies with very large balance sheets doing it. So it's, it's changed a lot. And I think what, what Marathon brings to the table is, um, you know, a little bit of, of a different tact. We haven't tried to historically build our own operations. We've been more of an asset light structure where we wanted to grow in, as quickly as possible. So the best way to do that with limited capital was to, to invest in the latest generation mining rigs uh, rather than investing in infrastructure. I mean, data centers and power is somewhat more commoditized and, and you, can, you can find others to host you. You can, you can grow faster by um, leveraging uh, your investments on technology and, and rigs rather than putting it in the data centers. So that, that strategy worked really well for Marathon. But starting last year, we started to pivot because we'd started to reach that scale. Um, we didn't need to grow as fast. And we had the, uh, the wherewithal to do it more of ourselves. We also learned some important lessons over that time. So now we're much more of a, a portfolio approach, we, we call it. We'll, we'll, we'll do a hosting transaction if it makes sense to help us grow. But we're also more interested in doing things ourselves, either through a joint venture like we've done in the UAE or actually buying in our own uh, hosting sites like we did last month when we bought the Generate sites um, in Texas and Nebraska. So now we actually are going to own uh, our own sites and do some of our own mining. So I think all this comes with a technology bent. I think Fred, his career has been spent in Silicon Valley and, and technology. So we really invest heavily in technology. We're the only miner that has our own pool software, for example. We're the only miner that I think, at least I know, that has developed two-phase immersion technology, which can help really harness the energy and make it more efficient over time. Um, we also have invested in our own firmware. We designed and built our own firmware. So that allows us to do things like not only overclocking the machines, which you can't do on a stock uh, Bitmain software uh, Firmware, uh, or take the governor off of it. <laughs> yeah, or we've actually been investing heavily in, in trying to make our software um, do better at underclocking. So you think about the future of this industry. You know, one thing we haven't really seen is, at least on the, on the public company side, is a replacement cycle. You know, these these rigs don't last forever. They get more and more efficient every time they come out with a new model. So eventually, the old models need to be deprecated. And you know, what we've done is sort of say, hey, if you can take a an S nineteen, for example and run it at 75% of, of its power draw, hey, maybe it can still be a, a profitable and efficient enough to, to operate in today's environment. So those are the kind of things we're working on. Um, there's a lot more to come. We can wow. get into a little later, but uh, 
trying to be a more of a, you know, sort of a technology, a vertical to integrated technology stack is kind of the way we view this industry as, as differentiating Marathon. Yeah. And just a comment, like, uh, it, it seems like it's, it's not just a mining company. I mean, it's, it's a, it's all, it's just a powerhouse. I mean, you guys are doing mergers and acquisitions, um, you know, you know, creative financing mechanisms. You guys are, um, you know, really getting scale across the whole infrastructure layer. Um, it's, it's really impressive just to, to see the whole scale, uh, in, in that kind of, you know, past, you know, five minutes, just explaining everything you guys are doing. It's, it's yeah. incredible. And then there's it's more, more than I even knew. <laughs> yeah. I think we're, I think it's where, what I like to think of as marathon is helping the industry grow up, you know, before, mm. Um, when I first started looking at the miners back in 1718, I mean, they were really small companies that just pivoted into mining. And Marathon was one of them. Marathon Patent Group was the name of the company uh, before it really became a Bitcoin miner. And it was doing something totally different. Uh, Riot was the same way. They were doing something totally different before they became a mining company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what we've seen over the last three or four years is really this this industry is maturing and, and becoming you know more like a real company and a real industry um, with um, you know corporate structures that make more sense, uh, you know, employees, when I first started analyzing Marathon as, a, as an equity investor, they had three employees back in 2021. This is only, you know, two and a half years ago, we had three employees. Now we have over 50. So that gives you a sense of, you know, how the, the, this, this maturation process, building out a finance team, building out an ops team, building out a technology team. So we have, you know, more things to go to market with and more ways to differentiate ourselves. So that's, you know, still early in the process. 50 companies, 50 employees is not a big company by any stretch of the imagination, but in Bitcoin mining, it feels pretty big. Yeah. I'm I'm curious if you could uh, you know walk us through you know maybe what what a day in the life of a, a VP of investor relations um, at Marathon or you know uh, a publicly traded company like you know what does that look like Are you trying to raise money Are you uh, communicating you know the the company's status to current investors What does that look like um, Yeah, definitely not definitely more the latter. I mean, it, it can it can be very different um, depending on what size company you're you're at. Um, I like the fact that. I work for a smaller company and I can take, I can wear more hats and, and do more mm-hmm. things besides just investor relations. But at its core, investor relations is, is talking to investors and, and telling the story um, and putting out press releases and putting out and making presentations and talking um, to folks like yourself and spreading the story. So, um, you know, I, my, my day to day is, is, you know, most importantly, the, the phone calls and the Zoom meetings that I have on the list um, for either the, the buy side investors, sell side investors, or sell side analysts that I talk to. We have 10 analysts that cover Marathon today um, and make sure that they have the story right. Make sure they're, I have to kick them a little bit, make sure they're publishing, on, uh, updating their estimates for all the things that are going on here. <laughs> um, and then also doing, you know, sort of industry type, type stuff. Um, but it's also a lot of internal stuff too. I, 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 we, as I think about my day, you know, a lot of it is uh, making sure that I have. Um, I'm prepared for upcoming conferences. We're going to do the Needham Growth Conference next week in New York. So a lot of preparation going to that, not just the presentation, but making sure we're thinking about the questions that might be asked and, and the answers we might have for that. Um, and also a lot of internal stuff. We meet as a management team every month or so, um, give or take, so almost monthly. So we're, we're a fully remote company, but we get together in person to talk about the business. And my, my job is just to relay what I'm hearing from the markets. And it, it, sometimes it actually affects business decisions. Um, you know, for example, do you, is it a good idea for us to start trying to monetize our Bitcoin? We have over 15,000 Bitcoin on the balance sheet now as of year end. A, a landmark number, a, a fantastic number uh, worth over $600 million in today's prices. So you know, what do you want to do with that? Do you want to potentially lend it out? Do you want to borrow against it? Do you want to start hedging part of it? You know, and, and my job is to say, hey, you know, 
let's not do anything that's going to cause the stock to to be even more volatile. We're already in a volatile space. Let's not add volatility. So those are the kind of things that yeah. we sometimes get into, um, bringing my perspective and how this is going to affect the perception of not just Marathon the company, but Marathon the stock. M-A-R-A, as you may be aware, is one of the most actively traded stocks in the market today. And uh, we aim to keep it that way. That's incredible. Um, no, so so if we could kind of take a look, you know, just on these same uh, ideas of just, you know, what are maybe the most compelling ways to value Bitcoin that you've found or that maybe Wall Street firms are using to, you know, value it? Because I hear so many times people say, well, it's backed by nothing. And, you know, you know, how can you value it? And, and like, obviously, that's that's just objectively false. Like there's so much CapEx and, you know, energy and infrastructure and investment that goes into this space. And there's the cost of mining, all that kind of stuff. I'm curious if, if you found one that's kind of compelling to you particularly. And second, like, you know, how does that feed into a valuation for a Bitcoin mining company? That's a that's a Great question that I don't have a good answer to because I found as I looked at all the models, you know, I, I felt when I first got into Bitcoin back in 2014, and that was the key question. Like, how do you value it? That's what, that's what an equity analyst's job is. And, you know, we did discounted cash flow models or, you know, peer com- comparisons, and you can't really do that for the Bitcoin network. And then, like you said, you know, people say all the time, like, there's nothing backing it. Like, my wife's father just, just over the, the Christmas break is like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I still don't understand it. How can it be worth anything? There's nothing backing it. Like, that, that mindset is is hard to change. But um, I like network models, like, you know, stock to flow and, and it's really like, you know, the network valuation models. Like, if you have a network that everyone's using, it's got value, you know. What that value is is hard to say, but there's some some it may make some some sense to that. There's also some other placement costs, like what it costs to make a Bitcoin should, in, in theory, be the floor uh, price for Bitcoin. Um, but it's tough to value, and I think that still is a struggle that I face every day when I talk to institutional investors and try to get them interested in in, in, in Marathon and, and the whole Bitcoin mining sector. There's a large layer of, of folks who just won't participate in this space because they don't know how to value it. They can't do a discounted cash flow on Bitcoin. They can do a discounted cash flow on a miner, but it's hard to do it on, on Bitcoin itself. And at the end of the day, Marathon as an investment is very much almost 100% tied to Bitcoin. If, if Bitcoin does well, Marathon will do well and, and vice versa. So it's kept our institutional ownership relatively thin. I used to, you know, as I mentioned, I used to traffic in in names like Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Square, you know, fantastic companies, great businesses, very, very high institutional ownership. Over 90% of their shares will be owned by institutions. Marathon today is 50%. And of that 50%, the vast majority is index and ETF. So we don't really have, you know, the big, huge funds that own our stock yet. Um, and that's because it's Bitcoin. Um, there may be like a social tint to it. Like, I want to be involved in that. I want to show up, I want to show up my filings. I own a Bitcoin miner, or it could be, it's tough to value. I don't know where Bitcoin's going and I know I'm not ready to stick my neck out. So we're aiming to change that. We got some, we got some time on our hands and I think the Bitcoin ETF will help change that narrative and make it less of a stigma about owning uh, a, a crypto or, or Bitcoin related stock in your portfolio. Um, but that valuation challenge continues today. I, I don't have a good model that says, Hey, you know, Bitcoin's at forty-four thousand today, or forty-six thousand. It should be worth seventy-five. I, I don't, I don't have that answer yet. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.
Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how have you seen Bitcoin mining become maybe more or, you know, maybe even less profitable than before? I guess I'm kind of curious what you're seeing as someone who's like completely plugged into this space. Uh, and also, you know, how, you know, as a mining company, how can you become more competitive or more profitable uh, than some of your competitors out there? Because I think the the average person that is a retail investor in crypto says, well, you have mining rig A or mining company A versus B, like how can one have the advantage over the other? And, you know, I'd love to kind of get your unique perspective on that. Sure. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the mining, the second question, which was that, you know, minor, minor A versus B. Um, at the end of the day, it's it's about very simple inputs. You, know, you have computers that ASIC computers that try to find Bitcoin, and we measure the their their output in, in hash rate. We measure their efficiency in joules per terahash, which basically means how much how much power they need, electricity they need to to produce a hash, um, which goes into your your, your computing power. Um, and so around those questions, it's you know no one really has that big of an advantage sourcing computers. Like you you might say we're marathon and we can buy them cheaper, but at the end of the day. Bitmain and the rest of the folks in the rig manufacturing space, they, they generally charge the same price to larger competitors. Like, you know, you know, if you went and tried to buy, or if I went and tried to buy a machine from Bitmain, I, I may pay more, but you know, the major competitors that we have in the space are pay very similar prices. So there's not only an edge there. Um, power is by far the most important input here. So given the fact that we're mostly in the United States today, um, and we also used more of a hosting model bef- uh, previously, and still today for most of our operations, we're paying not only electricity costs, we're paying a, a fee on top of that to the provider. So APLD, Applied Blockchain, or Applied Digital, they call themselves now, um, is our one of our biggest hosting providers. They're a public company. And so you can see their numbers. You know They make about a 40% margin on their hosting business, which means that we're paying that. So um, mm-hmm. that is a, a key part of our story today that we're looking to change. And one of the ways we're going to change that is like the transaction we did in December where we bought two of our facilities from Generate Capital. So in those cases, we're going to, we already have machines at these locations. We're going to take over the rest of the, of the locations. So we have about 60, I think it's 64 megawatts of power uh, in of the 390 that we bought that we're currently already hosting. Uh, that's a, they were our contracts that were in these places. Um, so the rest of it will eventually be able to either continue to host other providers or take over for ourselves. But on that 64 megawatts, we're going to get a 30% gross margin lift from owning it ourselves. Just give you an idea wow. of like what kind of margins people are paying yeah. and a deal that makes just a ton of sense. Like, oh, wow, we can expand our capacity and lower our costs at the same time. You know, what, what a great transaction and, and for a reasonable price. So those are kind of the high level things that people, I think, you know, sort of differentiate on is, is power. Um, someone asked me the other day, actually, a buy side investor was was asking, you know, what's the big thing you worry about? And the big thing I worry about is um, someone coming up with a, a very, very low cost solution that we can't compete with. So, you know, for example, I, I there's a lot of hydropower in the world. We're actually uh, now on uh, the ITO dam in uh, Paraguay mining. There's so much excess power there. Seven gigawatts of power. I think that dam prov- produces. Wow. Paraguay gets three and a half. So, and, and and they only need, I think, a, a peak like three for the entire country. And they've got like seven other dams in the country. So that excess power, you can't really store it today. There's no battery technology that allows you to store electricity at scale. Transmission lines can only go 500 miles, basically, and they're expensive. So a lot of it gets dumped in the ground. And so what I worry about is someone just with a very, very low power cost just taking over the mining space by just leveraging situations like that and dumping it all into Bitcoin mining. 
not something we're worried about today, but that's sort of like the the the, the worst case scenario is that there's large, sure, nation state scale um, mining at very very low cost. Other than that, we compete with anybody. Um, especially in the United States, you know, the power costs are relatively similar. A lot of folks are in Texas where it's a deregulated uh, electricity market. So you get the, the ebbs and flows of that market. Uh, we're also very heavily invested in Texas at this point, especially with our Generate deal. Um, but we can also differentiate on other things. And I mentioned earlier um, our firmware, you know, being able to overclock and underclock and, and, and improve efficiency. Our, our pool software, we think that we, we capture more economics because we have our own pool. Um, not just the fee that, that other uh, competitors pay to their pool provider, but also we're, we showed last month that we were able to capture more uh, transaction fees from the spike that we saw in December. So things like that, I think, are, are kind of like the first step of differentiation. And where we're going next is is more leaning even heavier into technology. Uh, a great example is heat capture. I didn't realize this until recently, but the Bit- Bitcoin mining machines, they throw off a lot of heat, which everyone's aware of, but that heat can be harnessed and, and repurposed. And it's, it's apparently 95% of the heat can be captured in a, in a Bitcoin mining operation. Um, so you're, you're wasting very little electricity. And so if you can use that heat to heat something that actually needs to be heated, like hot water in a building or a laundromat or a greenhouse, then you can theoretically you know, mine for free because you're, you're, you're using heat to power another revenue generating opportunity and mm. the electricity ends up paying for itself. So that's something we're very heavily looking at today is to try to make ourselves even more efficient by leveraging the heat offtake. And this also leads into the, the whole um, uh, you know, sort of stranded energy discussion, like our LFG project, landfill gas project in Utah. Like if you had... You know, landfill gas, you know, it's such a problem in the United States. There's so many landfills that, and a lot of it is just wasted in, into the into the air or vet, or flared, which is not, sort of a second best bad solution. Um, if you could capture right. that methane and monetize it, you know, would that be a better solution? Well, the hard part is monetizing it. It's not easy to, to capture methane and sell it. The, you know, just it's not it's not a very easy process. Just like electricity, it's just it's hard to transport. It's hard to capture. But if you can turn electricity at the site and turn into a revenue generating opportunity like Bitcoin mining, all of a sudden these projects make more sense. So we see a future where a lot of stranded energy projects get paid for by Bitcoin mining. Otherwise, you don't have the revenue to make it worth worth the while. So if you look at landfill gas capture in, in particular, it actually peaked in 16. It's gotten worse. You know, there's less of this landfill gas being captured because it's expensive. But if you could find some way to pay for it, you know, that changes the whole story. Yeah, that's just crazy. It sounds like you know, um, you know, people really competing uh, on a geopolitical scale just for really the cost of energy. And I know that there was a lot of uh, craziness in tw- I think it was twenty twenty one. Mine, China banned mining. Everything went crazy. Everybody's like, they have the cheapest energy. But then now, is it back? On- is China back online now? I I don't know. How is that all? How did that all play out? Yeah. So um, it's a it's a tough question to answer today. We don't really have good geographic. Um, numbers. Uh, there used to be a study by um, the Cambridge Energy Index folks who also put a very high cost on Bitcoin mining, but they've they've stopped doing that. Um, they, they basically admitted that you, with IP addresses being so easily um, uh, obfuscated, it's hard to yeah, it's hard to you know yeah it's hard to to say exactly where mining is taking place. And so we don't really know exactly where what's where China is today. We do know that it's not zero. Um, we, we know it's probably not where it was before, where it was 75% of the market was in China at one point. Um, so it's been a big benefit to the, the whole space, I think. Um, that was one of my biggest sort of bull points when I was talking about Bitcoin mining stocks in 21 was not only do you have this situation where 
um, the mining is now available. You know, there's market share available. Basically, when China exited the market, there was market share to be taken by U.S. mining companies like Marathon. There's also very high margins back then because the network you know hadn't adjusted yet. There was more mining share available per terahash than there than there was historically. So you could ha- you know it was a kind of a land grab of market share. But it also I think gave me personally a lot more conviction in Bitcoin. I didn't like the fact that this decentralized network was 75% located in China. And today, I think it's a much more healthy situation. Not only is it not located in China, which potentially has you know, political risk, um, but you also have public companies. You know, what a great situation to have public companies doing the majority of mining today, where you can actually not only see, you know, their annual and quarterly financials, but we put out monthly statements. You can see on a monthly basis how much Bitcoin we're mining. Um, you know, some proxy of where we're going from here, um, how much Bitcoin we have in the balance sheet. Like it, it brings a whole level of transparency to the network. And, you know, in my mind, that what's one of the, the most amazing things about the Bitcoin network is the transparency. <laughs> you know, it's like people can see every transaction. They can see, you know, you can do all kinds of work and, and figure out, um, you know, what exactly is going on. It's all public, you know, so so different from the world I came from before, where you know analyzing payments companies, you, you get nothing. <laughs> like you don't have any idea what's really going on inside those companies um, because you know it's, it's all private. And even, even Visa, and Mastercard, these massive networks that we use every day, we don't really know a lot what's going on inside the Visa network, Mastercard companies. Um, but Bitcoin, it's all out there for everyone to see, and it's such a it's an elegant, it's a beautiful solution to, to have such transparency. And I think Bitcoin mining being that transparent as well and sort of matching that transparency is just a, a, a great outcome of the China ban. Yeah, there's definitely a discussion um, that that's you know prominent. I think you referenced the Cambridge report on uh, just Bitcoin's energy usage. I think there's kind of a fallacy out there um, that Bitcoin is just this um, kind of you know bottomless pit for energy that is just all for naught. Um, but but it's actually you know um, you know mined a lot with renewable sources of energy. Like you mentioned, they're doing the carbon flare sort of recapturing um taking you know co2 out of the of the e- uh, ecosystem and, and kind of powering the bitcoin network i'm just curious um you know w- when you take a look at you know visa and mastercard they could process you know whatever 25,000 transactions per second and they do it you know for lower energy than it costs to mine bitcoin how do you kind of um you know maybe position you know bitcoin relative to 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 a, a payments network like that, just in regards to the energy consumption? Is this something that you think about at all? All the time, actually. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, one thing I find very frustrating in the crypto space I mentioned earlier is this, you know, sort of anti-Bitcoin sentiment. And they, they, they tend to, to change their narrative um, frequently, you know, before, when I first started looking at it back in 14, it was all about Silk Road. It's all, you know, legal activity. Um, and then it evolved to, it's all, you know, it, it, it uses as much power as as Argentina does on an, on an annual basis. And so, you know, I think it's a very important part of the story to tell is that the, it, it is a positive story for energy, not a negative one. So um, I think it's a it's a very important part of my job is, is sort of educating folks on, on the institutional investor side of like, you know, why this is not a, a bad thing for the environment. And, you know, I think that... Um, you know, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that there's lots of traditional industries that use a lot of electricity. I think the bad news for Bitcoin is um, it's just public information. You know, you can't go out and you know, easily estimate how much, um, you know, the, the banking industry or, or the payments industry uses uh, on an annual basis. It's not easy. It's not an easy calculation to do for Bitcoin mining and Bitcoin itself. It is. It's not an impossible calculation as long as you have an assumption about the efficiency of the network. 
in terms of joules per terahash for the machines, as well as what electricity costs they're paying, you can come up with a pretty close approximation of how much electricity the network is using. So I think, you know, it suffers from some of the stigma that's, you know, sort of anti-Bitcoin that's come up, you know, throughout the years. You know, I think I've listened to some of your podcasts in the past, you know, Liz Warren, she doesn't like Bitcoin because she, (laughs) her her bank supporters, right? It's not, it's not that hard to figure out like that she's trying to protect the establishment and it's not anything to do with Bitcoin. Um, so the more we can prove that Bitcoin is is good for energy development and you know do things like the landfill gas and other things we've got in the works, um, talk about stranded energy and how you know it's not it's not, it's not as simple as, as you think it is. We're not wasting electricity. I think Bitcoin mining is actually one of the most efficient industries when it comes to electricity consumption in the world. Um, partly because it's designed that way. I mean the the the, the, the beauty of this network and, and its design. Um, is is shocking in so many ways how how perfect it is. But the, the fact that every four years the the reward gets halved, and it's coming up in April, um, it just forces the entire industry to get more more efficient. Um, systematically, it forces the industry to get more efficient, and also you know forces the industry in some ways to to be um, more uh, more renewable power too. I think if you you know if you think about electricity as your biggest cost, you you need to be as as renewable as possible because it's going to be cheaper. And if you can find landfill gas for free, even better. But I think that's you know a, a, a very big sort of misnomer in the industry that we're trying to change is that yes, it loses electricity, but it is one of the most efficient uh, energy efficient industries in the world, and it also gets forced every four years to become more efficient. So. We'll be looking forward to seeing what happens post uh, the next halving, because I do think that we'll be interested to see what happens to all these miners that don't have the efficient rigs and they have to, you know, what are they going to do with them? You know, they're going to be able to find ways to repurpose them. And, you know, sort of like we were talking about earlier, like underclocking them, but you can't, you know, you can't do AI with Bitcoin mining rigs. You can't even do Ethereum, obviously, because it's not like not an option, but there's not, not that many other uses for ASICs other than mining Bitcoin. So, um, this replacement cycle will be interesting to see what happens, but it is uh, part of the software and the, and the elegant design. It, we are forced to get more efficient every four years as an industry. Yeah, you know, I think the having is a great segue here because that seems to be what everyone's thoughts are kind of gravitating towards, especially as this this ETF chapter is hopefully coming to an imminent positive conclusion. Um, but the gears are kind of shifting towards the having, and people have a lot of questions about it. And so I'm curious, you know, from from your perspective as one of the lead mining companies in the industry, like what do you think is going to happen with the having? Is it going to be different? You know, typically it's associated with pretty positive thoughts for the for the crypto space. But you know, I'm just kind of curious to pick your brain about it. Yeah, no, it's a it's really a very hot topic, and um, it's funny how the ETF has sort of uh, overtaken the having as sort of the hot topic <laughs> of the day, and I'm sure it's going to change because. Hopefully the ETF someone is here and and having is only three months away now. So um, yeah. it is it is a uh, on the surface of a, a negative event for Bitcoin mining companies because your reward is getting cut by half and there's not really really you know anything you can say other than it's going down by fifty percent starting uh, in mid April right now. So um, the good news is that um, well recently we've learned I think this is one of the, the struggles I had in the past with Bitcoin mining was, you know, will transaction fees ever be material enough to matter? And we've certainly learned over the last year, you know, starting in May and then in December. December, we had over 22% of our Bitcoin mined was, was through transaction fees. Just an amazing number when you think about it. Over 380 Bitcoin of transaction fees in the Maripool in December um, because of network congestion and ordinals and other things going on. But, you know, at the end of the day, it, it sort of helped me think, 
hey, this is this is not the end of the of the, of the world. Then when, when having comes, because if the mar the the the, mar, the the network will rebalance, and the way it rebalances is you know through the the hash rate mechanism. And if everyone's turning off their machines, well, the hash rate's going to go down, and more you know more will be available for for marathon. Um, if Bitcoin price rallies like it t- tends to with the having, then we may see you know mining hash rate come down less, and the you know, some of the less efficient miners continue to mine. But at the end of the day, as long as you're in the top quartile, which is our goal to be in the top quartile on a cost per coin basis, you're going to be fine no matter what. And I think what the transaction fees have shown me recently is that um, we're going to be fine for a long time. I mean, I think there's some view that okay, well, you're going to be good for this having, but when you get to the next having and you're down to one and a sixteenth, or the next having after that, and thirty-two, it's less than one bitcoin. You know, unless bitcoins that, you know, name your price one hundred, two hundred thousand, your guys are going to be out of business. Like, no, that's not true. That's not true at all. If bitcoin could still be at fifty thousand or even thirty thousand. The network will rebalance. There has to be mining mm-hmm. to keep the network flowing. And if they don't make any money, they're going to turn off. So as long as we're in that top quartile of of costs. I think we'll be fine no matter what. Obviously, I think it's a it's a better outcome and a happier outcome if Bitcoin price is rallying and everyone's still in business. But even on the alternative, where miners are having to shut off, we think we're in a good spot too. We have uh, about a billion dollars of cash in Bitcoin on our balance sheet as of December, and we wow. showed recently that you know we're not uh, we're not sitting on our hands with that with that cash. We're looking to, to take advantage of, of disruption in the market and to generate capital is just hopefully one of many, you know, sort of highly accretive, attractive transactions that we can do to, to improve our financial profile and, and hopefully help out some of our brethren who may not be uh, able to continue operating. So um, we'll, we'll see, I think, an increased M&A cycle for sure post-having. Um, we'll see yeah. a lot of the older rigs shut off. We'll see, we'll see for the first time companies say, hey, we're not profitable in, in this part of our business anymore, so we're going we're gonna to turn off. I think BitTier actually announced that. Um, in their monthly update in December, they turned off about 8,000 rigs that were older generation machines. You'll see a lot more of that, I think, post-April. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, I love kind of the comment you made just about how the having forces everybody to adapt and become more efficient um, on so many different ways. Uh, Bitcoin seems to me just like a living organism. It, it, it really is. It, it, right. it adapts, it, it, it breathes. You see its hash rate go up and miners get priced out and it falls and miners get priced back in and... It's really, uh, it's really an, an interesting song and dance that Bitcoin does, and it's it's really fun to be a part of. And you also um, you can compare and contrast that to like other industries. Like we're going to be, you know, carbon neutral by twenty fifty. We're going to be all, you know, no more gas lean powered cars by whatever year. Like they have to set these extremely long time frames. And you know, Bitcoin miners, every four years, you got to be more efficient or else. So it's it's pretty amazing yeah. how how different it is in other industries. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, you know, kind of as we wrap things up, you did mention really interesting, um, you know, Bitcoin fees are, are going higher. And um, that's a lot due to um, some of the new applications that are being built on Bitcoin. Part of it's the new users and, and all sorts of different activity starting to skyrocket. It's really good for a mining company. Um, maybe it's not so good for a user who now says, well, it's the same cost to, to send a wire now, 30 bucks and cost to send Bitcoin. And so there's definitely some play there. but um, you know, are, are you, you know, kind of bullish on all these different applications being built on Bitcoin and maybe clogging up the network and driving up fees? Or do you think that kind of the base layer of Bitcoin should be reserved, you know, that block space should be reserved for just, you know, high value settlement um, and, you know, you know, to keep fees uh, kind of low? How are you thinking about it? Yeah, great question. And one that we'll probably be debating for years, I think, is, is 
is what this looks like. I personally, I like ordinals and technological technological innovations on top of Bitcoin. I think are fantastic. Um, yes, it does potentially create some congestion and, and network fees that are are hopefully temporarily too high for some transactions to take place. And as a Bitcoin miner, I'm a little biased there. Not 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 shy to say I like transaction fees. Um, but I love the, yeah. the innovation that can take place. The beauty of this open source software that we can you know reprogram it and improve it with SegWit and Taproot and and all the things that came with that. You know those were big, huge undertakings. And you know kudos to the developers who who you know made that work. Because it's not an easy thing to do to upgrade uh, software that's so that's already so scaled. Um, and there was so many different users on it. So um, I think that that, it, that part of Bitcoin is, a, is an underappreciated story, the ability to adapt and evolve um, and make, in my vin- opinion, Bitcoin the blockchain rather than just, you know, a blockchain. Um, so, you know, I think there are uh, other solutions. I think you mentioned, you know, the, the base layer may be reserved for larger transactions. And I think that's what also makes uh, the, the design of the software, you know, sort of fantastic. It's 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 open competition. It's supply and demand. If the network is busy, fees go up. If the network is not busy, fees will go back down. And if we have exciting solutions like Lightning or others that allow things to take place off chain at a much faster and more efficient and, and cheaper price, that's a good innovation as well. Um, I think there's you know ways around that basically. So uh, I, I think that you know that some of the the, the the naysayers about you know sort of this is not good for Bitcoin just don't understand that you know this is not just a payments network this is so much more than that and to limit it to a payments network I think would be short sighted so um, yeah yeah I, I don't I don't foresee a day since I'm a payments guy you know when people are are spending Bitcoin left and right uh, freely I think it is much more of a store of value and a, and a longer term um, you know sort of asset class than than it is a, a a payments vehicle sure you can make payments with it but it's just not built for that is is my opinion. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there's just a, a ton of different things Bitcoin can be uh, to, to any individual. You know, it could be a way to remit sort of your earnings back to, you know, your family overseas, or it could be a way to, you know, start to diversify your your pension fund. Um, and it's it's so interesting to see kind of what it's going to be. And now there's layers on top of Bitcoin, like you mentioned, Lightning. I'm also um, going to plug Stacks. Um, you know, full disclosure, I've got exposure to, to stacks and Bitcoin, and, you know, a lot of the different coins we talk about, but I think it's just an incredible, uh, what they're doing, um, you know, building a smart contract layer on top of Bitcoin, um, so that you could have sort of Ethereum like DeFi applications really seamlessly built on top of Bitcoin. It's obviously going to drive, um, you know, a lot of usage for, uh, or in, in fees for, for Bitcoin miners. So, I'm really excited what's going on there. And, and there's just a lot of innovation, you know, what, what Taproot kind of enabled. Um, just made the the network so much more extensible. So, um, you know, Chris, we're, we're really excited about what you guys are doing at Marathon. Um, and in, in closing, we just want to get um, just a sense of any sort of words of wisdom that you would leave uh, to a Crypto 101 listener, um, you know, just on how they could, you know, decipher the space, fact from fiction, good from bad, you know, from a veteran uh, to maybe a, a newer person, what would you kind of say? What would you leave them with? Uh, good question. I mean, I think um, it's very important to to know your your source. You know, something like this podcast. I know your audience. Like, flip that around. Like, know your source. Be careful of what you read. Um, do your own work. I think is the most important thing. And 
Um, you do find like people in the Bitcoin space tend to be very um, passionate about it, but also, you know, not always telling the full story. So, you know, open up to wide sources of information, um, do your research, um, but ultimately, you know, take an open, open mind too, because I think a lot of people, the vast majority of people in this country, you know, have preconceived notions about what Bitcoin is and isn't and, and would find that the more research they do, um, the more they can learn about, you know, how just how powerful this this innovation is and how, how this network has evolved. I mean, I can't even believe it's only been 14 years, right? So we're like, we're crazy, already right? like, you know, having, you know, massive companies take advantage of, of Bitcoin mining like Marathon. We have, you know, ETFs coming that hopefully attract billions of dollars. This this space has grown up so much in just a short amount of time. You know, what's coming in the future, I think, is is exciting. Like, we, we just tapped, you know, sort of just scratched the surface of what Bitcoin, I think, can become. So, yeah, I think that's the, that's the hardest part is... There's lots of information available today, but everyone has their own biases and, and you know, sort of trying to spin something some way. So just make sure you keep it up in mind when you're looking at this space that there's so much to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Trust, then verify. Check your sources. Don't believe everything you hear. All the things your dad would tell you when you're you know doing research back in high school. Um, I love it. Thank you so much, Chris. For, for kind of coming on and giving us your your view of the landscape, your perspective for for uh, spreading the good word about Marathon and all the good things you guys are doing. If people want to follow you, stay in touch, um, whether that's on um, you know social media or your website, any links that you'd want us to put in the show notes for all the good citizens of Crypt Nation? Yeah, I definitely want to follow uh, Marathon Digital. We keep a pretty active social um, media presence. We have a whole team of guys who are, are making sure we spread the word, um, not just about Marathon, but what else we're doing. And also would, would follow Fred. Fred's kind of our, our go-to uh, sort of prognosticator, economist, mm-hmm. everything in between. Um, he's, a, he's an excellent follow on Twitter. The ever-faithful chief. Yes. Uh, I love it. Great shout out to Fred. Um, hope you enjoyed your time on the podcast. Hope everybody at home enjoyed their time with Chris today. Um, and give us a follow and we'll talk to you guys same time, same place next week. And Chris, you're invited back on anytime you want. Anytime there's another big update, please do let us know. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it, guys. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Take care.